Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us in week three of our series, Speak, Your Servant is Listening. This week, we get to look at one of the more well-known prayers in the Bible, Hannah's Prayer, which is sometimes called Hannah's Song, given its poetic and beautiful composition. Now, this prayer rightfully sits in the beginning of 1 Samuel, as Hannah is Samuel's mom, so she has to come first. But more importantly, because the author, who is believed to be Samuel himself, uses Hannah's prayer as a thematic introduction to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. There are themes riddled throughout and that repeat themselves through those two books that are also evident in Hannah's prayer. And we'll look at those briefly today. However, I believe Hannah's prayer can offer us something more than that, something deeper than that. I believe it can help us overcome a limitation and a constraint that is holding back our prayer. I've heard some people say you know, things like, oh, Peter, I'm, I'm just not really good at praying. Or sometimes even, I don't, I don't know how to pray. And I believe Hannah's prayer can help us identify the root of that and take our prayer and our connection with God to a new level. Now, there might be some of you here that are saying, Peter, I, I haven't said that and I haven't thought that. And that's okay because I still believe that this prayer can provide us a powerful inflection point on our relationship with God. Let's go through this verse by verse and break down some of the imagery Hannah uses in her prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And Hannah prayed and said, actually, I'm going to stop us right there. I don't want us to miss the context of this prayer. So chapter 2, it starts off with the word and. And that means it's a direct continuation of the action from the previous chapter. Now that probably sounds obvious, but I call attention to that because I don't want you to think this is just some ordinary prayer or some bedtime prayer. It's something so much deeper and more important than that. So if you haven't been with us the last few weeks and hear us talk about chapter 1, or maybe you have been with us physically, but not mentally, I'll give you a quick recap. So Hannah and her husband, Elkanah, are trying to have a child. They want a son, but they can't. Hannah's unable to conceive. And so for years and years, she's crying out to God, saying, please give me a son. And to the point, she says, God, if you give me a son, I promise I will give him back to you in service at the temple for all of his life. So God honors that prayer, and they get pregnant, and they have Samuel. At the end of chapter 1, Samuel is now about three years old. And it's at this point, it's at this moment in which she's come to the temple to give away her dream, to give away her prayer, to give away her son. It's in this moment that she prays this prayer. Remember that as we go through this. Verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord, and I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So during those days, the horn was a symbol of strength. And that's because the animal, its strength came from its horn. So think of like a bull's horn and the strength that resides in that. So Hannah is saying that she is made strong by the Lord, and she's able to smile at her enemies because she knows that God will deliver her. Verse 2, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So the imagery of a rock is about that of a a strong foundation or defensive position. And when we think about a a rock today, we probably think of something, right, that is strong and relatively unbreakable. But, But the idea here is so much grander than that. 
It's the idea of an unbreakable foundation. The kind that you'd build a house on. The kind that you'd escape to for safety. The, the, uh, the image of a rock safety can better be understood under the context of the dangers of the Judean wilderness. And so those photos you can see behind me are, are modern day of where Judea would be. And you can see the steep gravelly cliffs, right? the ravines that could flash flood at a moment's notice. Right? That, that, that strong rock, that high place we could go to. It gives us better meaning to the idea of Jesus as our rock, our safety, and our strong foundation. Verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Hannah's saying, don't be proud. Don't be arrogant, for God is the one who knows everything. Not you, not me. Right? If the proud talk is as if they can, they can never be wrong. But go ask any expert or, or scholar or leader in their field, and they'll tell you, the more you, you know about something, the more you begin to realize how much you don't know about something. Verses 4 and 5. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. Now these two verses, they should not be taken as literal imagery. That is, hey, those that are full, yeah, you're going to go hungry. Shame on you. No. Hannah's using hyperbole to make a point. She's saying that those who believe themselves strong, right, the proud, God can make low. He can humble them. And those who are humble, the hungry, the needy, God will give them their needs. He will meet their needs and elevate them. And we'll see this idea play out through First and Second Samuel with the rise and fall of King Saul and the rise and fall of King David. And we'll talk about that as a church in the weeks to come. Then we see Hannah pivot to a personal note as she reflects on her personal struggle with infertility. And at this point, she's only had Samuel. She's only had one kid. And she's not here predicting that she's going to have seven kids, but she's just rejoicing in the blessing that God has given her. But the, the word choice is ironic because Hannah will be, go on to be blessed with five additional children. Five more kids, six in total. Verses six through eight. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. God is the master of life. God is in control of all things or said differently, God is sovereign. To be sovereign is, is to be the supreme ruler, the, the ultimate authority, or, or said simply just to have the final say. What God says goes. And then we see here the term from the dust. And that comes from the fact that the poor right, were relegated to sitting on the ground because they were low in societal status. They were low in physical status. They were not given access to public seating and had to sit within the dust. And then we see the term ash heap. And that was even worse. It could be likened to you know, a pile of refuse or garbage. It would be like digging through a dumpster just to find the scraps to survive. And Hannah's saying that God is rescuing people from these circumstances. Those that have no seat in society will now be given a high seat in God's glory. And God has the power to do this 
Because it's his world. He's the architect. He built it. The foundational supports, those figurative pillars that Hannah talks about in verse 8, those were put in place by God. It's his world. Verses 9 and 10, Hannah closes out her prayer with this. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. God will guide our path. He will ensure that we have firm footing as we walk through the journey of life. And the evil that will be left alone, relegated to the darkness. I love the phrase, by strength no man shall prevail. It, it highlights you know, the struggle and the lie that mankind you know, today and back then faced with the idea that whoever you know, you know, had the most strength, they were the top dog, they had the most power. And back then specifically it was about your nation's military might. But, but Hannah's saying that God is greater than that. And he has a plan for his people regardless of their physical strength. Because Hannah has seen that in her life as well as in the life in the journey of Israel, as she would have known from the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And she has such confidence in that, such confidence in God, that she says he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Something, something to note, though, here is, is that Israel doesn't currently have a king. It's the time of the judges. And actually, Israel has never had a king at that point. So Hannah has no reference point for this. So personally, I believe that you know, she knows God's redemptive hand is at work in her life and in Israel's life. This is also the first time the concept of anointed king is used in the Bible. An anointed king is quite literally a Messiah. Now, it's unlikely that Hannah knew her son would be the catalyst right, for the ultimate Messiah, that Samuel would anoint God's king and that the lineage of that king would lead to Jesus, the final and ultimate anointed king, the ultimate Messiah. But prophecy or not, Hannah had the utmost confidence and trust in God. She believed in God's sovereignty. After praying, verse 11 says this, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child, to Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So after her prayer, she finishes praying, and they leave. She is separated from her son. Right? While turning over her son, she prays things like, Oh, my heart rejoices in the Lord. No one is holy like the Lord. He, oh, he brings low and he lifts up. That is such faith and, and trust in God. Hannah's prayer is ultimately a prayer of God's sovereignty, a full-hearted trust in his work and in his plan. And we actually see this prayer show up elsewhere in the Bible. We see Mary pray it when she finds out she's pregnant with Jesus in the New Testament. And it's not word for word, but Mary is definitely referencing Hannah's prayer, looking at some of the words she chooses. And it's cool because both of these women are experiencing unexpected pregnancies. Both of these women are being used by God to fill, fulfill his plan and his redemption of the world and his people. And both of these women are trusting in that plan. As beautiful as this prayer is, though, like I said at the beginning, I believe there is something even more beneath the surface. 
As I read this prayer over and over in preparation for today, what struck me the most, what struck me as the most powerful, actually wasn't any of the written 11 verses. What struck me was what was underneath those verses. It was Hannah's heart. Her raw, genuine heart. What would it look like for us to pray like Hannah? Not these exact words, right? That was her journey and her struggle. And we each have our own journey, our own trials, our own struggles, our own successes, our own crowning achievements. In those circumstances, what is our first reaction? What is our first response? Our key verse for this week is is simple yet complex at the same time. It's the first three words of our text. And Hannah prayed. And Hannah prayed. Prayer should be our response to all circumstances. That, That is the challenge I have for us today. Hannah is rejoicing in the Lord's sovereignty, even as she hands over her son. This isn't a a temporary arrangement. This is the bad part of the deal. I mean, I have two daughters of my own, and I can't even begin to imagine handing them over to somebody else. I mean, not even if it is the church. I mean, I love Chad. He's a mentor of mine, right? And, And he's a great father to his three kids. But I'm not giving him my daughters. I made them. They're mine. Or, my wife made them. But, but you get the point. What would it look like for us to pray like Hannah? When we look at something like Hannah's prayer, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, that's a good prayer. Well, we, we should pray good prayers like Hannah. But, but that's a true statement, but it's, a, it's an ambiguous statement. It's a very unactionable statement. Now, what, what is a, a good prayer? What does it look like to, to pray correctly? Can I say that? You know, correct prayer? That's a polarizing statement. It, it probably should be. Now, I'm not trying to get into the specifics of you know, what prayers count and which prayers God's actually listening to. No, if anything, I'm actually trying to counter that culture and mindset altogether. Today, I want us to be freed from the burden and expectations of, of, of manufactured prayer expectations and rules. What is the measure of a good prayer? Better yet, what makes Hannah's prayer a good prayer? What makes David's Psalms a good prayer? What makes the Lord's Prayer a good prayer? It is the underlying essence of those prayers. A good prayer is an authentic prayer. A good prayer is an authentic prayer. Prayer is not measured by length, by a thesaurus, by scriptural references or flowery language. It is measured solely by the heart. Look at verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord. Hannah's heart is overflowing. She's praying from her heart. I remember when I used to lead a a small Bible study, at the end of each week, we would take prayer requests and list things that we needed prayer for, and we'd volunteer to pray for each other. And uh, there was one individual who who would never volunteer, which which wasn't a bad thing, but when you'd ask, hey, do you want to pray? No, no, I'm just... I'm not really good at praying. And then he'd pick someone out of the group. Oh, but Steve, because Steve is just so great at praying. And I just wish I could pray like Steve. And yeah, and I'm good, thanks. So one week, uh, 
I encouraged or really made everybody in the circle pray. And I said, hey, just go around and just pray whatever's on your mind, whatever's on your heart. Well, we got to that individual. What he prayed that night was probably the most powerful prayer of the evening and has stuck with me to this day. It sounded something like this. Oh, God, um, yeah, just, God, thanks for the week. And, uh, yeah, just thank you for just watching out for us. Um, God, I just, uh, yeah, I just, I just pray that you'd continue to help us uh, this week, God, through, yeah, through what, what we've gotten. Yeah, th- uh, thanks. Amen. That prayer stuck with me. Not because of its flowery language, of, of which it had none. And not because of its length, of which it was quite short. But because of its authenticity. That was a man talking to his God. He was not reciting. He was not performing. He was speaking from his heart to his Father. And that is the heart that I want for us today. A heart that simply prays. A heart that is solely focused on talking with our God. That's all prayer is. It's just talking. Or or even if you don't want to say it, just thinking. I don't want us focused right on, on references and flowery language and length and all these other things. Which, by the way, those are not bad things. When secondary to the primary focus of authentic, genuine communication with our Heavenly Father. That should be our response to daily life. That should be our response to all circumstances. And Hannah prayed. And Peter prayed. That promotion came through. The unexpected bonus. And Peter prayed. The kids disrespected. They talked back. And Peter prayed. The weather was nice out. And Peter prayed. And you prayed. The medical diagnosis. And you prayed. Marital problems at home. And you prayed. That business deal finally comes through. And you prayed. Let that be our response in all circumstances. Now remember, prayer does not always have to be a happy thing. It doesn't have to be joyous like we see in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. We should be praying with all of our emotions. All of our emotions. It's okay to to grieve or to be angry when we pray. I mean, look back at chapter 1. Look what Hannah prayed. It says here, the Lord had closed her womb and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. So much so, and Chad mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that the priest, the chief priest, sees her in such anguish and goes, woman, you're drunk. She's like, no. You think, idiot, you're not, not drunk. But she responds very respectfully, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink. But have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. This is not a happy woman. And I don't believe the verse in chapter 1 the prayer was a happy prayer. And that's okay. Her response to her grief is to pray. And Hannah prayed. 
She speaks with authenticity to the Lord. We can speak and pray with all of our emotions. It sounds so weird, but God wants all of it, all the mess, all the baggage. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to praise him, to thank him, to ask him for things, for wisdom, for guidance. He wants us to come to him. Now you may think, as I have done many times, if if God is all-knowing, well then why do I need to ask? I mean, if he knows what's on my mind and on my heart, I, I shouldn't have to tell him. I mean, look at the text. God clearly knows Hannah wants a child. I mean, she's so anguished, right, that her friends are noticing, the priest is noticing. Why do I need to ask God? Why do I need to tell him? Well, becoming a, a, a parent and a father has helped me answer this question. I'll be in the kitchen, you know, getting something ready for dinner. And in the other room, I'll hear my daughter cry out, <laughs> Cooking! I know what she wants. Well, actually, everybody knows what she wants. She wants a cookie. I could give her the cookie, and the crying would stop. I have two toddlers. There's a lot of crying in my house. I just want peace. Or, as her father, I can come to her and say, Eliana, come here. What is it? Ask me. Tell me. Let me help you. What is it that you need? What is it that you want? God wants the same thing for us. God wants us to come to him. He wants us to want him. He wants us to talk to him. God does not need us, but we need God. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. God wants to raise us from the dust. He wants to pull us from the ash sheep to rescue us from those trials. But sometimes, though, it can feel like that he isn't listening. That we're crying out to Hannah, that we're crying out to God like Hannah, saying, where where is my Samuel? Where is this God? And he feels absent. The new deal at work that fell through at the final minute. The, The illness and remission that returns unexpectedly. A friend or family member who takes advantage of your goodwill. How can we know that God is listening to our prayers and problems? To me, the proof is in the data and the evidence that we have right in front of us. We just have to pause and see it. Because the first thing you have to realize is that God actually answers 100% of our prayers. 100%, every single one. But not all of them are in the affirmative. Some are yes, some are no, but none, none fall on deaf ears. None are not heard. Some are answered immediately, and others take more time. A while back, I was going through some of my stuff, sorting through some boxes, and I came across this old journal of mine, and it's a prayer journal. And it's actually not your traditional prayer journal. So if you look at my wife's, you know, filled with, you know, these, like, beautiful diary entries of her talking with God... Me being the, uh, the PNG manager that I am, it's literally just a list of prayers. <laughs> bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. And actually, I went as so far to collect data and keep track of the ones that God answered. 
Now, I'm not recommending necessarily that anybody do this, but I share this because I want to share something interesting that I realized as I looked this over, as I thought about all the prayers I'd lifted up to God and what was God's response rate. I would propose, when when really being honest with myself, that God says yes to more than 50% of the prayers we lift up to him. Now, that number may sound high, and I'm not claiming any kind of official theological statistic, but I want to challenge the notion that God does not listen or grant us our prayers. Step back and and think for a moment of all the prayers you have brought before God. How many times have you asked God to help you through a tough circumstance, a, a new boss at work, a difficult relationship, or even just driving home in bad weather saying, oh, God, get me home. And yet here we are today. We did not succumb to the circumstance. We did not fall and fail. We are sitting here today. We said, God, help. And God said, yes. Yet we have the audacity to claim that God does not listen due to a handful of times that he said no. For years, I would imagine decades, Hannah struggled with her infertility. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, it says, So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord. Month after month, no child no child. I mean, elsewhere in chapter one, it talks about Hannah being ridiculed by her peers, the pain, the angst, the suffering. Yet she continued to trust in God. She continued to choose prayer. You see, sometimes what we think are no's are actually yeses. They feel like no's because they're measured at the wrong point in time. Time is the great prover of God's sovereignty. It's only through our narrow human lens do we believe God's hand to be absent from our lives. As I look back at the the plan and the story that brought my wife Kristen and I together, it is riddled with what looks like no's from God. Kristen in college, heartbroken, as a serious dating relationship comes to a close. Me, frustrated in college, just trying to get one dating relationship to begin! Two years after college, we meet. During those two years, three different people tried to set us up here at Horizon. And we look back at that Chris and I and we go, wow, what a cool story. Look how God brought us together. Oh, what a, what a sovereign plan. But, but in the moment, nothing felt good. It didn't feel great in the, in the pain of the breakup, in the frustration of the singleness. No, it felt like God was absent. It felt like, no, no, no. But standing in today, Kristen and I wouldn't change a thing. God had a plan. He was sovereign. He heard our prayers and he said, yes. Hannah had a similar journey, praying over and over, not knowing if God would provide her a son, but choosing to persist, choosing to trust. And her faith was rewarded. But it was on God's time. You see, God had a perfectly orchestrated plan. If Samuel comes on Hannah's time, on her terms, when she wants him, well, then there's no arrangement with God, and Samuel's never dedicated in service to the temple. And if Samuel's not in service to the temple, Saul is never anointed as king, and then thus David is never anointed as king, and if there's no line king of David, there's no Jesus. If Samuel is not given in service to the temple, no Jesus. Couldn't have come earlier. He couldn't have come later. 
God had a plan. It was on God's time. It was on the perfect time. God had a plan. God has a plan. We don't always get to know that plan, and to be honest, we seldom get to know that plan. But when we stand back and we take a 10,000-foot view of our life, God's handiwork is evident. If you zoom in too close you know, to a painting or a picture, it just looks like dots and brush strokes. What is this? But when you step back, you can see the beauty of what it actually is. The closed womb of Hannah has suddenly become so critical to God's narrative. Some of you here might know of the NFL quarterback, Nick Foles. So he started playing for the Philadelphia Eagles back in 2012 and you know, was a backup and he was fighting to get you know, his chance to start, get his chance in the, in the spotlight. And he had a couple of those chances, but there was always a, a setback or another reason why he was relegated to the backup. 2013, though, came and he had a moment. He took his team to the playoffs and lost in the first round. A year after that, I'm able to do good. Nope, no playoffs at all. He was ultimately traded to another team. That team chose to draft a new star quarterback. So Nick was released. And it was at this point that Nick paused to reflect on his life. Because you see, Nick Foles is a man of deep faith. And so he prayed to God saying, God, what is it that you want for me? Should I keep playing football? Because every time I think it's my moment, every time I think you're saying yes, it's a no. And he felt like God was telling him, persist. Trust in my plan. And, and Nick's okay, I, I want to keep playing. So he did. And he ended up with a small contract where he played barely anything at all that season and was released again. But this, ironically enough, would bring him back to the Eagles where he had a small contract, his smallest yet, playing back up to a star, barely saw any field time at all until late in the season when the starter tore his ACL out for the year. Nick comes in, finishes the season strong, hits the playoffs, takes them through the playoffs to Super Bowl 52 where they beat the New England Patriots. And Nick Foles is named MVP. Later when Nick reflects on that journey, he was quoted saying this, that journey that I went on, it strengthened me because when I was weak, I became strong. This is just like what Hannah prayed. God lifts up the humble, the weak, the downtrodden, through the ups and the downs. Nick trusted that God was at work. Even when it seemed like everything was no, 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 he persisted and chose to push on. When all the signs said to give up, he didn't. He trusted in the narrative God was working in his life. What narratives does God have working in our lives? The job you lost that could maybe lead to a better job or a new opportunity you never would have seen. A child's illness that brings a broken family back together. I do not know your story. I do not stand here and pretend to know your pain, your trial, your struggle. But I do know your God because he's my God. And he is a good God. And he is a sovereign God. A God that we can trust in. A God that we can lean on. Now I'll admit that not every prayer is answered in a yes. So don't hear me come out of here and say, Oh yeah, if we just keep praying hard enough, and I keep praying, 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 God will cave and will give me what I want. No. There will be seasons of life, and then the dust, and then the ash heap. I could tell you times that God has answered no to my prayers, times I felt like I was in the dust, 
then the ash heap. God, let my sister's tumor be benign. Don't let it be cancer. But it was. It was thyroid cancer. God did not take that away. God did not you know, say yes to that prayer. Now she's been cancer free for almost five years. But having no thyroid has made a permanent impact upon her life. It's a trial that she must face on a daily basis. Why does God answer some prayers and not others? Sometimes, like we've talked, it proves out with time. But other times, like my sister's cancer, it doesn't. Other times, God seems wrong. And no passage of time, no pastor's theological reasoning, no cliche scripture will ever make it feel right. And the only thing that I can speak into that pain is for you to know that that pain, that suffering, that trial, that circumstance, that sin is not God's desire. It is not God's desire for you. It's not God's desire for any of us. And Hannah knew that. Look what she said in verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The anointed king. The Messiah. The ultimate solution to the ultimate problem. Hannah trusted in God's plan. And Hannah prayed. And Hannah prayed. Our Heavenly Father wants to know us personally. He is a relational God. And what is relationship without conversation? Just talk to God. It's that simple. Talk to your Heavenly Father. He wants to hear from you. There are, there are no rules. There are no criteria. There are no expectations. Just talk to Him like you're talking to a friend. And Hannah prayed. And Peter prayed. And you prayed. What if Horizon embraced a heart like Hannah's? What if we prayed authentically in all circumstances with all of our emotions? Think what would happen. Our series is called Speak, Your Servant is Listening. What I tell you today is speak. Your father is listening. If you speak to him, I promise he'll speak to you. Let's pray. God, I just pray that we would desire you, that we would feel the confidence and the comfort to bring our, our whole self to you. That we would just come to you and just talk. That we would feel safe in your arms, God. And I just pray that this week that you would reach out to us and you would knock on the door of our heart and you'd say, what is it? What's wrong? Talk to me. And that we would. That we would talk to you, God. That we would connect with you. And just thank you, God, for your open arms and your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. I mean, if this is your first time here at Horizon, we'd love to meet you. Come on down to the hearth room, third room on the left. Have a great week.